0: Today's episode is brought to you by the Create Engage Marketing Accelerator, our brand new program to help startup consulting founders like you scale your business through digital marketing. This is something that I am really passionate about and so excited that we are able to launch. I regularly get messages from listeners like you and others in my network asking for marketing advice. Everything from what were the steps that I took to launch Create Engage, through to what's the best platform for running a webinar, through to how do you create great content for LinkedIn, and everything in between. At Create Engage, this is exactly what we help our clients do, and more. But for many startup consulting firms, our retained support is simply not a cost-effective option. I've been in your shoes and I know how it feels. You want to use digital marketing, you know it works and you see the results it delivers for others, but you don't know where to start. At this stage in your journey, you have more time than you do money, but you want to make sure that you are investing that time in the right way to deliver return on investment for your business. We are launching our marketing accelerator to do exactly that to give you the strategic advice, the guidance, the support you need at a price that makes it a no-brainer for smaller consulting firms like yours. By joining our accelerator, you will join a network of like-minded consulting entrepreneurs, all focused on growing their businesses. Each cohort will be handpicked to ensure that there is no competitive tensions in the group, giving you the comfort to discuss your challenges openly and learn from your peers, Each month, you will meet with one of our expert team and your fellow Accelerator members for our Accelerator Roundtable, where we will walk through your specific marketing challenges and develop the plan to help you successfully deliver your marketing goals. We'll do this in small, focused groups, letting you get our advice, but also learn from your fellow members and benefiting from hearing the advice we're giving to them to apply to your own business. This isn't the end of the Accelerator, though. Each month, we'll hold a private webinar just for Accelerator members where we will walk you through everything you need to know and through your top questions, the things that you have asked us to show you. This could be from how to run a great webinar through to how to launch your own industry leading podcast. We'll also give you our tried and tested systems and templates, everything you need to make your marketing successful. There's a lot in there, but if that wasn't enough, We'll also be bringing every member together into our private LinkedIn community, giving you a place to share your ideas, ask for advice, and learn from each other to help make your marketing better. As this is the first Accelerator program we're running, we're launching January 2021, we are offering all of this for just £750 per month, plus VAT, with an initial commitment of six months, less than £5,000. To give you everything you need to set your consulting firm up for success. Just imagine if that helps you secure one project, think about the return on investment and what that could mean for your business. Places are limited, and we have already seen a ton of early interest in this first accelerator cohort. So if you want to find out more and apply to be part of our Create Engage Marketing Accelerator, then visit createengage.com co.uk forward slash grow to read everything you need to know about the accelerator fill out the application and we look forward to welcoming you to our first cohort to help you accelerate your business through digital marketing. Hi and welcome to Climbing Consulting. In today's episode I speak to Tricia Nelson partner at EY and head of their UK and Ireland people consulting business. This is an interview that's been almost two years in the making, and I am so pleased to say that it was certainly worth the wait. When you hear about a senior leader like Trish in one of the world's biggest consulting firms, it's easy to think that they followed the traditional consulting career path. They went to a good university, got the right grad scheme, and made all of the right moves to climb the career ladder from there. But as you'll hear in today's conversation, Trish's story is anything but. In today's episode, we dig into Trish's story and discuss the hugely important topic of diversity, an area that Trish is extremely passionate about, having seen firsthand many of the challenges that underrepresented groups face in climbing the career ladder in our industry. In this episode, we go deep into this topic, deep into diversity and inclusion, and cover some really important and impactful areas, many of which I've not covered with any guests before on the show, We talk about the challenges for young people right now and Trisha's own experience of building a career, having left school at 18 and not going to university at a time when this wasn't the done thing. We discuss the challenges that our industry faces when it comes to diversity and what consulting leaders like you can and should be doing to help increase awareness and accessibility of consulting as a career and then supporting those from underrepresented groups to thrive within our industry. And we talk about the unseen diversity impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic and the hidden challenges that this new remote working world creates that your consulting firm really needs to think about. In an industry that is still largely dominated by white men, Trish is both a fantastic role model and a true champion for those underrepresented in our industry. Whether you are a woman who is looking for advice and guidance on how to climb within consulting or you're one of the privileged many, a white man like myself, that wants to know what you can be doing to help those in your team thrive, and you are going to love this episode. So, without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Trisha Nelson. Hi there, Trish, welcome to the show. Hi there, Nick. It's great to finally have you on the show. I think as we were just speaking about, a lot has changed since we were first talking about doing this interview, not least this year. So really excited to have you on the show and thank you for coming on. To kick us off, for those who maybe don't know you so well, it'd be great if you could just give an overview of, of your background and, and how you got to where you are today.
1: Wow. yes, it has indeed been probably about two years since we first talked about doing something like this as I was moving into the people consulting space. So um, I guess if I start where I am now and then maybe we can go back a bit. So I lead what's called the people consulting team within our consulting business within EY, within UK and Ireland. And you're right, there's obviously a number of steps taken to get to that point. And I haven't always spent my career in consulting, which was one of the things I remember really thinking about when I made that career choice. That's nine years I've been with EY now and it's been nine of the best years of my career, I have to say. So very happy to talk more about that.
0: Brilliant. And we'll come on to the EY piece and you know what you've been doing there, because you've had a fantastic time, as you say, and, and you know done very well. I kind of want to start all the way back at the start and almost for my listeners, could you give a, a very potted history I don't always go this far back, but I think leaving school was quite an interesting time for you all the way up to EY So I don't know if you're happy to sort of give a brief overview of that and then we can start jumping into some bits of your journey.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Leaving school was a long time for me, and I'm very proud to say I turned 50 last year. And that was another milestone, actually, in life and career. But yeah, I grew up, maybe I'll tell you where I grew up. So I, I grew up in the west coast of Scotland in a, an area where normal local comprehensive school in fact the the same school as our first minister of Scotland and I do believe I was the year above and and I was also the school captain so that's a source of amusement for (laughs) many people but um a wonderful part of Scotland and on a a beautiful coastline but economically challenged and um you know it was not always certain what you were going to do when you left school so having had an Okay, school, I guess, academic record. Not brilliant. Um, I didn't end up going to university. Didn't have anyone in my family that had gone to university. Didn't really, it wasn't so much it wasn't on the cards, but. I just felt it was never really achievable for me. And I look back now that I've got a 16-year-old daughter and a 10-year-old son myself, I look back at those days and think, why did I not push myself more? Why did I not feel I was capable of that? So that's that's some, That's something. one of the reasons why I spend so much time now with either younger people or women returning in careers. I'm very into reducing as many of those self-limiting beliefs as possible. And to a degree, I guess, you know, you are very aware at this stage in your career that you are a role model, you know, good and bad. I'm very, very conscious of that. But I guess leaving school for me was I just wanted to get to work. I had a very strong work ethic, always had. My parents, our entire family, I was working from before I had my national insurance number. No matter what jobs they may have been, washing dishes and a hairdresser, delivering papers, anything I could do. And I think that was... Partly driven out of my background with my father in the army and very hardworking mum, And they had traveled the world. I was born in Germany. So when it got to that point where, you know, my brother and six sister who are older than me had had 12, 13 schools, I only had three in comparison. You know, so I was very, very blessed to be very settled and went to the same school, mainly for primary and then for secondary. And I guess the reason I tell you that is I'm so conscious of those early years, those formative years, they absolutely shape your confidence. So, and and I guess I get to flip to the current day now, you know, my daughter's just had her exam results with no exams for her first ever year of exams. And, you know, as EY, we're, you know, we're really, really proud that we're still bringing in a thousand students over this summer. Really, really important that we fuel the economy and fuel those careers and all those self-beliefs at at that very, very early age. So we'll we'll probably maybe come back and touch on that because it's hugely important to me personally. And so I guess leaving school was, low expectations of myself, but I was determined to work in some kind of media and um, communications type role. So I ended up moving to London. I did a few things in Ayrshire, but the, the options were very, very limited. And because I had that sort of tiny chip of not feeling quite good enough, and I can't really figure out why. My mum was very ill when I was young and she died when I was fairly young, which was formative, but not, not yet at this stage. So I ended up moving to London. I used to buy the Media Guardian all the time. And if anyone's the same age as me listening, they may remember that. And it was the paper to buy if you wanted to work anywhere in advertising or press. And so that's what I did. I I basically wrote off to all these ad agencies and I moved to London when I was 19. And I worked in an ad agency in the city, just around from St. Paul's. And and I I moved down to London.
0: Did you have the job you were moving to or did you move to find the job?
1: No, I had the job. Um, but I'll okay. tell you what was most exciting and it seems really precocious now is I remember flying down for the day using my mum's credit card. To, they had, they were living in England by this point. They'd, they actually left me in Scotland living with my sister to finish some exams and I ended up moving down to London after I'd got a job. So I flew down for the day, which looking back then seems quite crazy. But I did. I flew down for the day, got the job on the day, had my second interview in the afternoon, which wasn't planned. And two weeks later, I was living in London. So that was a bit of a whirlwind move, but no regrets at all.
0: Why don't we start there? Because I, I think that you know the points you made around what EY are doing in terms of bringing in students and just your own passion. I, I think it's a really powerful area to dive into. And so, while I may not sound like it now, I I also went to st- sort of state comprehensive school, and actually consulting wasn't an industry I found out about until probably just after university. At university, I wanted to be a lawyer because they had good pens and they told you how much they'd pay you, which at the time, you know, felt both of those were big pluses. But actually, you know, that's been very formative for you, and I think. We get a lot of parents listening to this show, you know, there's a lot of consultants who have kids. And and just because you've touched on it and it's so topical, I mean, actually, what is that advice that you've been giving either to your daughter or to to other young people around universities, that next logical step? And when I was, you know, I'm now 31 going on 32, sort of that was the way you got into careers like ours.
1: Yeah, sure.
0: And we'll we'll come on to actually what organizations like yours have done to to change that. But actually sort of where do you advise young people? You know, is that still what they have to do? Is it not? Because obviously I'm very conscious it's it's not the route you've taken and you know, as a role model you've you've been very successful without that.
1: Yeah. And I think it hasn't always been successful. So and I think success is it's so personal. It's so personal to the individual person and I truly believe that. So yes optically I'm very successful from the perspective of an equity partner within you know one of the best companies in the world the best in my view and I mean that all encompassing in terms of our culture our values our focus on the things that we're talking about and it's what hooked me it really really hooked me and I think if I look back to that advice it's probably similar to the advice I've given all of the years that I've been I guess growing up which is that You know, there are things that you have as natural skills that people around you will not always think are things that are valuable to use from an employment perspective. And an example of that would be if I look back, it was quite clear now to me that having been voted school captain, I was in a a comprehensive area where four local comprehensive schools, you're talking thousands of students. It was the middle of the teacher strikes and we were having no end of year curricular activities at all no discos, as we called them then, no year-end parties, no no year-end shows. And I was very musical, so I was very much looking forward to our year-end shows. We had none of that. So I rallied all of the schools to get something together. I went to see all the rectors. You know, I I was in the newspaper. I was was just doing what I did. I was just thinking, well, hold on a minute. This doesn't feel right. I'm going to get a bunch of people together, and we're going to talk about it, and we're going to try and solve a problem. And I was good at communicating. So there were clearly some skills there at the beginning of that, time in life. that, But I remember nobody picking up on that from a career point of view at all. And that that's now I look back and think, oh, if you can dig deep as a young person and talk to other people and figure out one, what interests you, what you're naturally good at, that is tech number one. And then I think the next part for me is it's like that. It's a, a line and a track from Robbie Williams, isn't it? Youth is wasted on the young. You kind of don't know what you don't know and if you look back now I wish somebody had really got hold of me and gone, do you know what, there's plenty of time to go to university you are bright enough to reset your exams if that's what you want to do you can do it. So I spend I guess a lot of time with the young people we bring on our Smart Futures programmes through our EY Foundation. We have a charity within EY which I'm very passionate about and that is, a lot of that is about social mobility. Targeting you know, our Poorest areas of London, Manchester, Glasgow, to really encourage kids, either from an entrepreneurial point of view or from a university point of view, to be the best version of themselves at a very young age. And I do think that landscape's changed now. When I was younger, there were no apprenticeships, there were no really good vocational degrees, there was very little difference between your kind of local college and your red brick universities. There wasn't a lot in the middle. So the variety now is absolutely immense. And I just really want people to exploit that. And I've listened to my own daughter who's just got you know, six A's and two B's in her exams and, and she is not remotely interested right now in going to university. It's a very different world, but I think that the socioeconomic impacts are huge of having other mentors and role models around you who can help you access things that you think are unaccessible at that time. Because like you, I never... I never saw myself as a consultant. Some people now say it was obvious at the time, but it wouldn't have been right for me at a young age. I wouldn't have then got the experience that I think makes me a great consultant today. It it just didn't work like that.
0: And I want to come on to that other experience, but holding on this point, because you you make it, I think what you say is really powerful, Trish, around that some skills are not academic. And, you know, looking back, like you say, I did okay at at GCSE. I don't think I did as well as, as your daughter's done, but, you know, there's those other skills. And actually, I always think, and you might have you know, much more experience on this than me, is actually there's a lot of people who have skills that you, you don't academically test for. So I always think something like sales. You know, Most people forget that recruitment and search is a very, if you want an industry, to your point of success means what you want, but if it's money, et cetera, it's a very good place to be. And actually those are skills that we don't champion when kids are young. And actually it's one thing saying kids should aware, get aware of this, but to your point around the Robbie Williams track, most probably most are probably busy playing Fortnite and you know other things and not doing sort of deep you know deep self-reflection almost how can any parents listening to this actually be helping their children and almost making i guess to what you're saying making a virtue of things that are not marked so even if you're not getting a's you're getting b's or c's actually promoting the skills that are non-academic but will help you in your career
1: yeah, absolutely. Or even like me, the odd D in there. So a really good question, quite a wide question. So if I think about, and you mentioned sales, so let's pick up on that a little bit. So one of my early jobs was actually in sales. And I think at the time, I remember feeling quite ashamed about it. Actually, I remember at the time sales had a real bad reputation for being, it's kind of where people didn't went who didn't work, go to college or university. And I absolutely loved it. And I realized I was good at it. And the reason I was good at it was I was very human. <laughs> you know, it's very kind of like, and I, I realized I had an intuition for understanding people. And I think that was the real first confidence first boost for me. So I was doing door to door sales of satellite television to some of the poorest parts of Scotland at a time when Sky was merging with BSB to become BSkyB. So that shows you how long ago that was. But those were really formative years. So if you compound the pavements and meet targets and actually, and work in shops, you know, as, as I said, leaving school and, and all through any college years, I, I worked every hour that I could. And I I wanted to lead. If I put my finger on it now, I wanted to lead. And I nearly joined the forces, actually. I nearly joined the RAF twice. And part of that was a desire to have some structure around my life and career that would put those leadership skills to the test. easy to say that now because I now recognize that looking back, but I couldn't really have described that then. Now, I didn't particularly enjoy selling things door to door, but I had a job and I needed a job and I was you know, was able to do it. And that stood me in very good stead. And then I moved. I found myself falling into sales roles. So when I moved down to work in the advertising agency, there was an element of sales with that because I was doing media research. I was working with radio producers. I was working with a lot of press. And I ended up leaving there to go and work at The Guardian, actually, The Guardian newspaper in production. But I found myself very quickly leaning back towards the sales side, partly because it was quite an exciting part of a newspaper to be. There was brilliant training and I found myself working in, in sales at, at The Guardian for a number of years. And again, I look back and I didn't recognize then that all those jobs were really foundation years they were brilliant skills to develop dealing with people meeting targets having a discipline you know these are great experiences so if you're a parent out there whose kid has you know got a paper and wants to work in you know a retail outlet or a food outlet or or be entrepreneurial themselves and set something up encourage it you know really really encourage it because they're testing themselves and they're they're exploring what they like and what they respond to they might not be able to tell you that but I, I noticed that in my daughter already. She knows what she doesn't want to do. She not tell us what she does want to do, but that's absolutely okay. Does that make sense, Nick, in terms of those foundational sales skills?
0: Yeah, well, and I think in, in those broader skills, like you say, Trish, actually elimination is as good as honing in on what you do want to do. And quite frankly, at 30, you know, well, I have a decent grasp on what I want to do just about. That wasn't the case probably a year or two ago. And I know lots of people who are my age and older who still don't quite know what they want to do. So I think your daughter's got a bit of time. absolutely. And we'll come on to your story. I guess the last the last question on, on this, and if I'm honest, it's always been something I've, when I'm a bit older and can find the time, and I know you'll tell me that time <laughs> starts now, but for me, there's always been a passion of actually, part of this is raising awareness of, like you say, helping young people see what they can actually do and pick out the best parts of them. The other thing that I'd be fascinated to your point around the EY Foundation and what you're doing sort of with underprivileged children, but others is the other, you know, the big challenge, and I found this when I went to state school, is actually just the pool of parents you meet means you don't meet that many people in our industry. Now, again, I can only talk from my experience is I didn't know any management consultants until I met people's parents at university. And actually what confirms what are EY doing? What can other firms think about doing? to help broaden awareness of our industry? Because it's one thing knowing your skills, but you also have to know where you can apply those.
1: Yeah, so that's a really excellent point. So I think many people I still think, and it is is changing, which is partly what you're doing with this blog series as well as influencing that, which is consulting is not an attractive career to people who think that it's, it's very much like it was 20, 30 years ago where it's a red brick university or it's your parents that know each other from the golf club. It's just, I can't tell you how different it is from that. Are there still traits of that where it's, you know, people know each other and there's a network side to it? Absolutely. But I think the conscience of business has changed so much and the conscience certainly of EY. When I I chose EY as much as they chose me. So that was at a time when I really been a buyer of consulting for many years. I'd worked with all of the big four ironically apart from EY actually I'd been a client of every other big four and most of the mid-tiers over a career of like 20 years or so before joining EY I had found myself in those influential positions either working with consulting teams or being the procurement lead or, or the sponsor of, of a program so I knew that there were brilliant consultants and I knew there were average consultants and I think our profession is no different to any other in the sense that we undoubtedly attract brilliant talent you know at all levels of the organization but not everyone's Perfect, you know and and it's not for everyone either and I think if somebody moves into consulting and and it's not for them I'm really glad they've given it a go because they'll definitely take something from it when you leave I used to be quite cynical when I was younger about how could you be a consultant if you hadn't actually done anything yet so I used to look at my friends who'd you know that I met in London who'd all been to great universities and had brilliant degrees and they were suddenly management consultants at all these amazing organizations and I was like wow what do you possibly know to consult on? But now I totally get it because obviously they're not in there on their own from day one, you know, leading by client engagements. They're in there learning and getting exposure to such a wide range Of experiences whether that be from you know an audit and financial services side of a business right through to transactions and seeing how companies merge and divest and acquire or to my own area of you know humans at the centre of everything we do you know what are those people impacts what is the digital HR agenda what are we doing with big transformations what are we doing with technology led change They're, they're part of these teams working with clients but I never got that when I was younger so I guess as a parent who like you didn't have a net Work from that extent that would look upon this as an attractive profession. I think the consultancies have to work harder, even harder than we do today, to attract people, to make it attainable and achievable and attractive. And we're certainly massively oversubscribed for you know any of our grad programs our work experience programs at every level of the organization. so it is really competitive, but I think things like moving to you know blind assessing, taking schools off CVs, taking ratings off CVs so that you're looking at the qualities of the individual and not and removing as much bias from the process as possible. It doesn't mean say it's not still competitive because it's still very competitive.
0: Yeah, I take the point. And I think, you know, those things, like you say, it's removing those biases in the firm from the sounds of it. Just making more people aware of what the industry is now, not where it was 20 years ago. Because yeah. like you say, I think you can be stuck in that time if you haven't seen it change yourself. I want to pick up on and a bit more, you know, you mentioned around, you've had tons of other experiences. Like you said, you had a 20-year career sort of prior to EY. So you very much come from that industry side. I'd almost, maybe we start with sort of what was it that, you mentioned there you've, you'd worked with a ton of different consultancies. What led you to decide you wanted to make that move, and why did you join EY? Because that's quite a – it's an interesting time to join a consultancy when you're sort of at that stage in your career. You, know, you were relatively senior by the sort of what I understand. What was it that made you say, actually, no, I'm going to make this move into consulting?
1: Well, this is maybe where it gets a bit real. So what, what I'd started to do, so fast forward to you know a few years after leaving London, and, and I think I mentioned earlier, when, when my mum died, that was quite a pivotal moment for me. I was only 22, 20, just coming up in 23. So I actually left London and moved back home to the west coast of Scotland to be with my dad. And so I applied for loads of jobs. I just basically blitzed at that time. The Glasgow Herald on a Friday was where you got your job adverts. And I found myself using all of those sales skills in that media background I had from London and I joined Royal Mail and I had eight amazing years there but there I fell into understanding what I was good at because I had some of the best mentors that I've had in my career there and those two men and they won't remember who they are but they were instrumental in my career and um, one of them was very able to pluck me from a number of roles and say look you're one of the best completer finishers that We've got. Can you take on this big hairy project? I was totally unqualified for it. But what he saw was what I like to think I'm good at doing now is spotting talent in other people, where he was saying, Look, come and lead this. You know, I've got your back, come and lead this. And we led a program called Shaping for Competitive Success. It was a brilliant program, and it taught me so much. So that's where I fell into change management, transformation, technology-enabled change, benefits analysis. I mean, a really, really wide range of experience project management methodology is also where I met some consultants. So that was my first foray into really team working with consultants. And that was amazing. You know, they learned from us we learned from them it was a really, really good experience. So that piqued my interest, but I wasn't bold enough to make the move at that time. Then fast forward on, I took that experience through the rest of my career there. And again, I ended up in a big sales role, I ended up as a national sales manager there. But I got to that point where I'd been with that amazing organisation for eight years and I thought I need to test whether I'm good here or I'm good at this and I want to try it somewhere else. And I then found myself back in Scotland leading a small agency, data analytics and research agency way ahead of its time. We won New Business of the Year Award 2004. It was a Tricky, tricky time financially with clients. We were working in financial services sector, small businesses, and cash flow. I mean, I learned so much doing that, but I had a hankering either to do something myself or to join a big organisation again. So my next step really was I met my husband. I, my, I was having our first child, and I found myself moving into the energy sector. And I also trained there, they were advertising for business transformation leaders, which is how you would have described me at the time, but it wasn't quite what they meant. So when I joined, I was actually being trained in Lean and Six Sigma, which at first I was like, wow, there is no way. I can do this because I'm not actually that, I'm not as numerical as you need. I've never done stats before, but I absolutely loved it. So that was a fantastic three years of working in a, a black belt and Lean Six Sigma world, again, working with some consultants and you know using all those natural skills. So again, through this part of my career, you can now see a number of different organizations, different sectors using consultants and I could see what was good and what wasn't good. So I had built my own opinion about the kind of companies I worked with as well. But as you progress through your career and you take on more responsibility, you start saying, well, I can do that. You know, I'm now leading this change. I'm now architecting this transformation. And moving into the space where I was in charge of very, very big programs, including consultants and including budgets, gave me a huge boost. And then I moved into another different sector, financial services sector. And Again, that was another sector where I had specific sector challenges, but the thing that I was doing was the same. I was troubleshooting, I was taking big problems and I was bringing teams together that didn't think they could make this any better and I was going, we can do this. So there's an element of what I would now call building high performing teams within that. But at that stage, my job was to find a resolution through quite complex regulated change. And I'm really proud of all those different stages. And obviously there's some bits and bobs in the middle that I've skipped over. But you can see there was a, a, a building of confidence of the things that I knew I was good at. And the, reasons I, the reason I was being hired and headhunted was because I had a reputation. And so that's quite flattering, but actually what that was doing for me was reconfirming that although I didn't have a degree and actually by the way, I should probably say I did slip in doing a master's in marketing at the weekends at Kingston University while I was doing all of this just to partly remove that chip on my own shoulder to get that validation that actually i could I could do this I was as a, I was more academic than I believed I was when I was younger. But those traits, going back to those things you're good at when you're younger or those natural innate traits, they're the ones that I believe have got me through my entire career. And I've learned what I need to learn, but I'm kind of who I am. So I'm very comfortable in my own skin now. Maybe, maybe less so at different stages. And there were a couple of really tricky points in in those years. You know, I had a really difficult couple of employment situations when I had both my children. Which, you know, to have a difficult situation once is unfortunate. To have it twice tells me that there is a problem in a lot of businesses in terms of the way we engage, activate and return women to the workforce. I'm very, very passionate about that. So all of that paints a picture that meant that when I had had enough of working for someone else and I was going to go out on my own, a colleague who I had worked with many, many years before who'd become a friend said, why are you going out on your own? You know, why don't you come and think about consulting. So I had a look around. I had some very good contacts in a number of the big four because I'd been a client. And and many of our clients do make that transition. You spot skills in your clients. I do that today. You spot, you spot your clients developing in front of your eyes when they're going through different experiences. And sometimes, you know, they want to make that move. And I guess I was one of those people. But I still had that little niggle where I thought, Oh, they're not going to want me. I'm from the west coast of Scotland. I'm short. I'm now 40. I've got a baby. I had all of these self-limiting beliefs. And I, I have to say, when I was very confident I was just going to go and work for myself, when I walked into... And I've told many people this story, so they, they they giggle at this, which is when I walked in the doors of UI in More London Place, I've made myself a promise because I'd had a bit of a tricky time. My son was only 10 months old and I made myself a promise that I was going to be a 100% me because I was done trying to fit into anyone else's organisation. And I had the best hour and I walked out of the building thinking, I have got to work there. I've got to work with these people. So that's kind of my lead up to then having, you know, got to 40, having two children, having had a a very non-linear career path. And, And in fact, I was called eclectic by banking standards when I worked in financial services. But that was just what they needed. It's just what they needed at that point in time. So there you go. So that's my story of how I fell into consulting.
0: Wow. And there's there's so much in there, Trish. I, I really want to come on to sort of the points you made about being a working mother and sort of where things are for in terms of diversity and improving, you know, the chances for women to climb in our industry. Because I think it's something that you don't have to read through many of the sort of papers is that actually, as you climb the consulting career ladder, there is a real challenge in terms of the number of senior women and how we get more women into positions like yourself. And I want to come on to that, but I kind of want to start because I think it will flow into there. And you you tell me if not, is, you know, the big thing for you and you highlighted this throughout is this sort of self-talk and this understanding yourself. And I think, you know, there's a lot that needs to change structurally and we'll come on to that, but actually helping people understand how they can overcome their own self limiting beliefs, you know, regardless of sort of race, gender, et cetera, is a really powerful thing. And actually you may just say this was something that came with time, age and maturity, but is there anything or any sort of real poignant points you mentioned, maybe your mentors, that that helped you start to break down those barriers so that you could, like you say, sort of, you could move forward, have the career you've, you've had pre-EY, but obviously at EY, and we, we haven't covered it, you know, you've, you've climbed very quickly, you've re- you're part of the senior leadership team. Now, actually, how did you break down those barriers for yourself before we come on to sort of the structural and other things in the industry that, you know, need to be looked at?
1: That's a hard one, actually, because I'm not sure it was one thing. I think it's many things. I think getting to a real low point in my mid-20s when, you know, job market wasn't great. I was willing to work as hard as anybody could possibly work. I really was. I was like a really, really hard grafter. And I was finding that just because of my CV... I wasn't getting interviews. So just because I didn't have a degree. So this was back then, I think it's slightly different now, but certainly then I was finding there were jobs I was looking at and I was thinking, I can do that job and I can do that really, really well, but I'm just simply not getting into the door because there's a paper exercise that says does not compute, you know, does not have this kind of degree. So I would find myself working around that and building relationships. So that sales skill, that natural kind of like slightly cheeky, you know, kind of if you don't ask, you don't get attitude. I started to use to my advantage in a slightly different way. But the mentoring and the sponsorship was absolutely critical. I can't underestimate now what an impact it was losing my mum at that age though actually and it's and again it's only now and later on in life that I really realised that because I think if she'd been here like my dad who's also not here you know they very much encouraged me I could be anything I wanted to be so much as I maybe didn't leave school with a huge academic track record other than organising some discos and (laughs) you know being the school captain they were very very encouraging I find myself just thinking about that and thinking, right, hold on, you've been told you can be anything you want to be, but there's all these rules. So the mentoring and the sponsorship I had from other people in industry was absolutely critical and still is today. So it it has been as important to me all the way through my career to have a really trusted person that you can talk to, not just one, but they they come in different guises for different things. And the other thing I would say is I, I lead a very blended life. I do not believe that you're a different person at work than you are at home. I, I I do not believe people when they say, oh, but I'm different at home or I show up differently here. I don't think, I think you choose how you show up, but I think it's very, very hard not to be you. So once I realized that, And a particular, um, in fact, even an EY partner who sadly is no longer with us, I'll never forget him sitting me down and saying, never justify being at the table. You're here, you know, so get that kind of like back cape on and, you know, get that. So working on your own resilience was was really important. But I can absolutely say sponsorship and mentoring and somebody who was able to authentically work with you and help you get over some of those self-limiting beliefs was really critical at every stage. And as I say, still is now, because we're all still human.
0: I oh, know, completely. And for anyone who's sort of taken that point and, and wants to find more mentorship or find a mentor, so I'm a, a big believer like you in that mentorship and advice, would you would be advising them to be going out and seeking it? Is that something that, you know, just... By doing good job, is that? Well.
1: Yeah, no, ab- absolutely. And and there's there's a great quote by uh, I think it's Eleanor Roosevelt, in, in, a, in a lovely book that that I like, which is um, about women in business. Actually, to be honest, there's a number of different quotes in this book. It's called Beyond the Boys Club, actually. And <laughs> um, it's, a, it's a really good read at any stage in your career as a woman. And it does talk about the fact that, you know, nobody, regardless of anything else, nobody controls your career. You do. Nobody can tell you what to do. And again, that's true, not just for work. That's many things. Nobody can tell you how you feel. So once you start to realize that, if you want to progress and you want a mentor, ask you know, so, and to use the Cheryl Sandberg phrase, you know, lean in a bit. I think I've often said to people, I've been leaning in so much, I'm practically horizontal. So I think there are times when you do need to lean in, but it's not for everyone. If you're a quiet leader or a quiet person, find your own authentic way to raise the question in terms of what you want. And it may not be within your organization. So that's the other thing for me. And I've kept in touch with at least one of my mentors from my Royal Mail days, have kept in touch with others from different organizations and I now do that for many other people and there are organizations out there that will help you with that depending on what sector you're in but we'll maybe touch on it within consulting because it's a really important part of just how consulting works because we're just one big crazy matrix aren't we it's not it's a world to be navigated with skill but with confidence.
0: Yeah no definitely and some great books and I'll we'll put them in the show notes as well and I I think that does bring us on to quite nicely, like you say, navigating it and consulting. And I, I'm really keen to get your take on you know, the topic you said you're passionate about, actually how we improve diversity and how we make you know, consulting a more, not just accessible, but climbing the career ladder, you know, a path that is open to everyone. Because you know, if we caricatured 20, 30 years ago, it was a sort of old boys club. The top table was all white males. There's still quite a lot of us, and you know, I'm saying this very much. I want to broaden the conversation, but I'm very conscious I am a six-foot-six white man. <laughs> so I kind of – this is a huge question, so I'll let you pick the bit you want of it, Trisha. Almost what should consulting firms be doing to, to really help make it a more approachable and, and a career that, you know, women – let's take women, but it could be diverse groups, whatever you, you see sort of the link to – more accessible? You know, you mentioned sort of actually part of it is anyone, not just women, but people – taking some of this you know the careers there but obviously there's some things around actually making it a career that's viable to everyone and i kind of i'll almost start and this might be the wrong place but i was looking at your linkedin profile ahead of this and your banner is you know will the future of women be shaped by policy or action and i i'll leave that as a starting point how you know what's the answer and, and you know if it's not one sort of golden bullet what are some of those small sort of silver pellets that we need to start thinking about for consulting leaders listening to this
1: Wow, that is a big question, and you're absolutely right. Oh, so the first thing I would say is, you can't apologise about being a six foot tall white guy because you can't change any of that. But what you can do is you can use it to really good advantage because you're in a position of privilege. I, as a white person, am in a position of privilege, and we can touch on Black Lives Matters, as well as a, as a as a significant movement across the world, let alone within my own firm, where I'm very very proud of what we're doing there. But I think. If I take the broad answer, so let's start with women. That's one lens on inclusion for me, just one lens. But I do know there are points in my career where I have felt inferior. Um, I've absolutely experienced sexism. I've absolutely experienced bullying. I've experienced lots that you would imagine by the time you get to 51, you have in a fairly, you know, traditional workplaces in some of the areas I've worked. But I can also say there are huge advantages to being a woman. And when you, again, you learn to embrace that. And until men can have babies, then, you know, there are certain things that only we can do. And when you start to drill that down and you go, right, actually, <laughs> I'm only having a baby. So So I'll give you an example of how I personally intervene. Is any woman in my team that's going on maternity leave has to speak to me before they stop. <laughs> I kind of make them because I want them to have the confidence and passion that, you know, They're going to maternity leave. They're not going to wait for years. Well, sometimes they are, but they they have a job to come back to. And yes, they'll feel different. And yes, there'll be different things to juggle. But actually, I want to give people a vision of what they're going to come back to, not what they're going to lose. And I think that's been really important. And I had none of that. And either of my maternity leaves, it was it could not be more different actually. And again, not through any conscious bias, just through inept leadership. You know, really people tiptoeing around the conversation, people genuinely not thinking far ahead in advance about what the business might be like you're coming back to, what strategy might be in place, you know, what leadership roles might be available. Dare I say people can progress and you learn new skills when you're not in the workplace having babies, definitely. And again, that's just one angle of being a woman. So I look at some of our younger women and particularly our BME women and our people from different socioeconomic backgrounds and there are inherent biases in many things that that we do in life, let alone within consulting. So we still have a long way to go in that. But I think if I were to think about your question around what do we need to do as consulting firms, more is the answer. So you're absolutely right. I look up and even within my own organization, it's still not diverse enough. We know that. So we're acting on that. I'm also very clear that I'm in my job because I'm good at it, not because I'm a woman. So there's that element to it. No woman wants to be in a role because she's a woman. No person from a diverse background, whether that be race, gender, sexuality or socioeconomic background, wants to be in that role because of their background. So we're very, very conscious of that. The reason I love that banner, is it policy or action, is I I believe it's an element of both. And that banner was, I've had that up there for a few years now. And every now and again, I think about taking it down and I go, nope, nope, I'm keeping it up there because it's still very much helps to define who I am and what's important about me. I want people to look at my LinkedIn profile and feel that they get me. And that, so that's been really important to me. And, you know, that was in a year when I was chairing one of the G20 committees at Chatham House with 60, 70 policy makers, as well as advocates and academics and people from business on this topic. And EY were involved in that. We're very involved um, in movements I guess you know it's we can't change the world on our own but we like to get lots of people together who can you know whether it be Davos or wherever and I guess that that has really struck me that there were policy makers in that room that day and this this was about global economy it wasn't just about the UK so it does need a combined force of Using our position in the world as consultancies to drive good, hence, our entire purpose is about building a better working world. We're very, very serious about that. It's massively attractive to people that we recruit, but we mean it. We absolutely mean it. And then, if I think about some of the opportunities I've had personally as I've got more experience to make a difference, you know, giving evidence in the Scottish Parliament, it's a few years ago now, actually, three years ago, I think, around the gender pay gap and giving advice essentially to the Economies and Fair Work uh, Committee around what should Scotland do around the gender pay gap and the role that business can play in that and Scotland's very different I guess business landscape market size of business massive small to medium-sized enterprise organisations that were being caught in different ways by the legislation so I think we have a role to play where we have such a an important influencing role is the conscience of business in general, not just for ourselves, but on behalf of many others. That I, and I think we do use that well. I think we can use it more. But also by role modeling to business and to industry and to you know individuals and society that big organisations can make a massive difference. You'll be aware of our work on long-term value, our strong belief that, you know, it's no longer just about profits. I'm not sure it ever was, to be honest, but it's very, very, very transparent now that, you know, the world of work has a massive role to play in society.
0: No, some really key points. And I... Is actually, I want to touch on something you sort of you mentioned around the advice you give to your team and how you make each of them, you know, come and speak to you. Because obviously, that's setting them up for that sort of maternity leave in the best possible start, so they know they've got a job to come back to. This might be a super practical question, and, and if there's not an answer to it, tell me. But the thing, you know, we're now of the age where people are having kids and or thinking about kids or have had kids, and the other really practical element that we find or I find, I'll speak for myself, is consulting. There's a lot of travel. There's a You're on the road. And actually, that can be quite challenging for mothers. It can be quite challenging for fathers, but just challenging for people who have young children. And actually, one of the big things, obviously, you've made this work successfully for your family. I'm sure you give advice to others who are coming back from maternity. And for me, this sits in that self-talk box of actually, what advice do you give people who come to you and say, Trish, I'd, I'd love to stay in this, but you know, I can't because I've now got kids and it's not compatible. You know, how, how do you help people with that?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And and if you remember when I joined DY, my son was ten months old. My husband was also working full time, and I was spending three four days. A week on the roads in Manchester I was still based back in Glasgow by then and the very nature of our roles you're right there's a really honest transparent conversation when anybody joins which is you know we travel that's what we do it's part of what we're there to do and that's not just within the UK or within your own city that's that's around the world And, and I've done a fair amount of that travel myself and I've been very struck by how much i've been able to make that work i mean part of it's because we've got a great team at home my husband is you know he's an environmental professional and consultant different kind of consulting but has is we have a joke at home which is you know he's way cleverer than me he's very much more academic but actually i'm the kind of practical one i kind of get on and get stuff done i'm also the more ambitious i'm also the one that has wanted that for us and for me so therefore you flex your roles I'm not saying that you can't both be, you know, high-flying partners of big firms and travel everywhere. So it has to be a personal choice as a family unit. Nobody can tell you what the right answer is. So I very much encourage people. But I inquire about what life is like, you know. What are they thinking? What are their plans? And it's not so much about just having a job to come back to. That's more the, you know, that's that's law. <laughs> that's uh, the legal aspect. I'm much more interested in the what are you going to come back and do? And what might your arrangements be? You know, where do you think you've got self-limiting beliefs? I see a lot of people automatically assume that they can't work on client site, for example. And being in the consulting part of our business, a lot of what we do is pitch up with clients on site. That's our jobs. And, and we love that. And it's how we're built. We're not sitting in an office, which actually is a huge advantage for us right now with what's going on with COVID. We're very adept at working from home and being agile. And that served us very, very well. But, you know, and yes, the world is changing. We'll, we'll maybe come back to that and have a look ahead if we have time. But if I think about how I encourage people to think, it's about working with the right clients on the right problems at the right time. I have found it's been far more important for our clients to have the right intellect person and experience around a project than necessarily to have that person by their side so there are many ways to skin the cat and I can think of some great examples if there are you know women that, I'm, uh, that I work with not just in my team but across the firm who have got a particular depth and expertise then there's a number of different ways we can deploy that you know it doesn't have to be away from home all of the time I think that's key, but there has to be a real, relatively practical side to it, which is if you need to be, how are we going to cope with that? But I tend to find it's more other people. Big, big part for me is never let anyone else tell you what you can't do when you come back from maternity leave, because it's all grounded in what your own setup is and what your own parameters are to be able to to have both. Does that make sense? Because it's so individual to the person dealing with it and also if, if, particularly if it's first child second child third child and, and in some cases fourth child which i have people in the team who my goodness have managed to do that uh, hats off to them there's usually there's quite a few twins involved in it then it means you've got different challenges but yeah it's very personal
0: it certainly does make sense and, and there's two big points in there which i guess come back to the same one of make it right for your family and speak to the business you work for the consultancy you work for and find a way that works for both of you and i guess it all comes back to what you said you know, you've, you've said throughout trish it's don't impose those limiting beliefs so to your point what we do is a consulting is a traveling industry but there are ways that you can flex that maybe it's not four days a week on client maybe it's two maybe it varies by project and particularly for a firm like yourselves the size you are maybe there's internal projects i, I don't know but you know there's there are ways to do this but it starts with asking those questions like you say and i guess not just assuming that you'll have to go back to the status quo pre-kids because the world's changed now you've got you know one two three or four
1: but we lose too many women across consulting when they hit that stage in their career and we do see and that then that's then why when we look up it's not a diverse enough field because we're losing too much talent at the stages usually around about you know sort of mid-level careers depending on when people have children then we're losing too much talent there. So more needs to be done to make it achievable and possible. Now, absurdly, actually, this world we're in right now will help accelerate us to some of that because it's amazing what we can do flexibly. So there's an attitude and an expectation of business that is that that needs to change, frankly, to accommodate and make sure we don't have that talent drain. And I would add that to every other group we're talking about as well, whether it be that geography. I mean, accessing talent is one of the most important things that consultancies do it's all we are we are the sum of the parts of the amazing people that that we have helping solve the world's biggest problems and when you frame it like that it's more important to have the talent than it is to worry about whether they're in the office or where they live that's my kind of very simplistic view on it and I do think that's changing I think attitudes on that I see it with clients some very very progressive clients who are quite excited about the advancements in technology and the I guess the acceleration of that future of work which is my area of specialism, that is now playing out live in front of our eyes as we get people back to work, to listen to employees, to build trust in the workplace so that people want to come into your offices again one day or your manufacturing plan or whatever that may be. So that should give us some very different opportunities to think about the diversity and inclusion of a number of different groups.
0: You've teed me up for it and I think it follows very nicely on from exactly what you were saying. And this, I guess, could be diversity focused, but broader is, you know, how the world has changed over these last few months and we've all been living through it, but I'd be fascinated to, I guess, build on some of those areas, you know, you were just speaking about, you know, both for yourselves and your clients. I mean, how, how are you seeing, not so much what's changed, but where do you see that future going? You know, do you think that as an industry and for your clients, actually remote will become the norm? You know, you were saying prior to this year remote's been a very good period for you. I know it has for others, including myself, do you think this is the start of a more fundamental shift? Do you think we'll be back to how it was in January? What do you see as the, the changes and what do you think is going to stick from this period?
1: Yep, um, lots in there. I think from a future of work perspective, which is my people consulting business, which I lead, deals with every aspect of that, whether that, as I think I mentioned some of the areas earlier, but anything about, you know, right person, right location, right skills through our mobility practices, which is our integrated mobility teams to my own teams, which is much more about workforce advisory and organizational analytics and or design you know what's the construct of the business all of those things are leading to very big people questions particularly i would say around employee listening and activism of employees during this you know global pandemic which and i guess we've had a slight advantage of watching our other member firms go through this slightly ahead of us in asia pacific and then you know learning and watching from italy and understanding how it was going to affect the business ironically productivity you know Goes up sometimes when people are based at home. And there's two drivers for that for me. And I've, I've run some webcasts on this with X, with it, with our clients across EMEA recently. And one webcast with sort of over 10,000 people on it. The overriding answer to some of the questions was about accelerating the planning for the future of work. So those companies that were already technology enabled, who had a sophistication around working from home and who were well equipped, they flipped overnight. And even some of those organisations, I would say, particularly in public sector, I do a lot of work in infrastructure that were on the surface less equipped, coped very well. So it's incredible what we can do. The organisations that are struggling are the ones that are not equipped. You know, so they're they're grappling with the planning for today's transition at the same time as that need to accelerate for the future. We talk a lot about work reimagined and it is about reimagining what work is done where but for years we've been talking about the jobs that our kids will do aren't invented yet that's just got faster that's just got neater. we also talk a lot about and a huge passionate area of mine is about unleashing human power so unleashing the power to do what we call the extraordinary that deeply resonates with me at this stage in my career now and we talk about sort of i guess there's seven or eight main areas that we'll tend to think are really impactful you know meaningful purpose we know that employees your listeners employees want purpose in their work so this has rattled us on a level that we never foresaw so people questioning what they do look at the number of people now moving from england to scotland for example to live in the highlands because they want more fresh air you know the property market in scotland has gone boom it really has gone boom and many other parts of the uk will be the same and trust trust in the employer is significant collaboration and that collective cooperation across industries and across sectors whereby we need private and public to work together on life sciences. I mean, look at what's happening through efforts to drive a vaccine. We would call it work imagination, so imagination around what's possible. So getting much more creative about how you can do things. Resilience is a theme we've talked about uh, continuously. We've touched on it today, personal resilience, business resilience. Um, But the, but the the last three for me are key and compassion happiness and transforming the way you do things. So that human edge is shining through and I've got many senior clients talking to them who are going, I'm not going back to work the way I was before because I'm now either getting to walk the dog at lunchtime or do yoga in the morning or and I think because it's been such a level playing field and certainly for our profession we're very privileged. We're in a very privileged position where Even if we do have some employees who are using their ironing board as a desk because they're crammed into a flat in London with three flatmates fighting over the kitchen table, and we do have that, then they they are in a profession where they can see that things are changing. They're still going to be able to do their work in a different way. So all those advancements in technology, they still stand. Those are happening. But what I've definitely seen with clients and with their own firm is those decisions that may have taken another two years, they've taken two months. You know, we talk a lot about megatrends, the megatrends that were impacting in, you know, 10, 15 years, they're, they're happening now and in the next couple of years. So there are really big global shifts in the way we are working and the way that society is working, that mean that we are going to have to dig really deep on the human factor. And that's, you know, we talk about our own transformation realized strategy has humans absolutely at the core of that, whether you're implementing a new business model, a new technology system, or whether you're, you know, leading, you know, an acquisitions trail to, you know, treble the size of your of your turnover humans at centre is a big theme for me but i would say that because i lead the people practice but it's it's something that you know i've got 300 odd people behind me who are waving the same flag and and working with clients on it
0: No, some really fascinating sort of areas in there and i think you're right Trish. i mean it, it's really that mega trends piece is so key you know this whole debate around could you work from home and could you not i mean companies who as you'll see you know there'll be some of your clients who probably didn't do any working from home who are now 100% and Actually, suddenly, that's a, a huge shift. I, mean, I, was, I was actually in London yesterday. London is a weird place at the moment. Not least getting the train. You know, there was two of us in a carriage that would usually have two hundred or however many you get on one.
1: But that's a great example, though, isn't it, of where that infrastructure around? We have to be able to safely move people around because actually, you know, the train companies need it, the cities need it, the retail needs it. The supply chain impact of all of this is amazing. So it's it's our responsibility to make that as as safe as possible to get people back into as much of a work pattern that they choose but the timings may change you know people may not feel the need to be in every day they may not feel the need to be sort of like eight to six or nine to five and travel differently and and, and another element for me and watching our own organization is don't think the consultancies have got this nailed because we've got just as many people some of my most senior colleagues who are you know, they're really missing the office. And it's, you know, even for consultants, this has been a really big shift where that comfort of getting to the desk. And particularly if you've got kids and small kids and getting that mental space has been a really big challenge. So I've, I've watched some people completely change the way they think about the fact that I live in Scotland, you know, so I travel a lot. But I'll be honest, sometimes I'm traveling because I need to travel to get a point made. And I think that's going to have changed a lot when I go back. We're realizing we can make pretty big decisions in a different way and therefore i hope that what we do is we really celebrate when we get together and we hugely appreciate the specialness of that close human contact versus you know doing it just because we can and we can get on a plane
0: yeah no, c- completely i think you look at some of the silicon valley sort of you know the big tech firms like twitter and facebook are already going that way and i, I guess just to sort of close this off and i'm very mindful of of your time in terms of actually the, the point you made a bit earlier around the, the impact this has on diversity and you know, I'd be interested in your view it you know, has us all now being transported into each other's living rooms and spare bedrooms and studies where we see kids dogs you, you, do you think this has helped that diversity agenda do you think it will help and almost if so why and are there any other areas that we'll need to work harder because we're not in the office potentially
1: yeah absolutely I think our working world the way we have it right now what you and I are doing right now favours people who are confident, dealing with each other on screens, are now getting very used to it and are able to articulate in a different way, listen in a different way. So absolutely, there are as many risks from a diversity point and inclusion perspective of the way we're working as there are opportunities. I worry about the people that are quieter leaders and who are out of sight. I worry about optics. I worry about, you know, people being less able to lean in as we talked about earlier i worry about leadership capabilities and we're focusing a lot on that within EY. you know how do you performance management how do you make sure we're not missing anyone you know so the things that you can't do or that you would normally do physically together if you were in teams physically together that is and working with clients and one of the topics i covered on one of the webcasts was absolutely about you know if you're in an industry, say automotive and manufacturing industry, whereby you have a production line, you need people physically there to do that. How do you build that trust and safe work environment? But also how do you teach your managers to manage and to lead in a virtual world and make sure everyone is included? Our hearing network, for example, I have a member of my team as well who struggles with hearing. So looking at the, all of those aspects of the working life, that disadvantage people from any background that's not of privilege. I think that's what I'm very conscious of. So there are as many cons as there are pros. I probably hope that doesn't sound negative, but I think that's the realistic view of where I'm at right now is I would like to think it was the opposite from a talent point of view. I think it means we can access talent differently. But I do think that not just consultancies, but business has to put an extra effort to make sure that this does not undo a lot of really good work from a an inclusion diversity perspective definitely
0: yeah and i I think it's it's a really powerful point to almost end that chapter on because like you say trish i guess ultimately the diversity agenda is about making it equal for everyone. And actually, that changes over time. And I mean, yeah, it sounds very obvious when you say it, but I hadn't thought of some of those challenges you've highlighted, you know, people who are hard of hearing. Actually, this is a real challenge, like you say, for for people who are more, I guess, extroverted or confident speakers. This is yeah, easy. But if that's not you, actually, it's quite a big thing to dial someone. And I think that, you know, it's these little social things that, like you say, you know, actually... Not just praising all the benefits of this, you can live where you want, you can you know, hire more working mothers, etc. But actually, who does this disadvantage and how do you change that? I think it's, really, no, it's a really important point to to almost round off on.
1: Let me tell you a funny story as well as part of that. So I've had some people say to me, because we're speaking so much on the phone and not just people with any Y saying, gosh, you sound very Scottish. And I was like, well, the last time I checked, I still am. You know, so you've got, there are different aspects to what people are now noticing about each other than we maybe yeah. noticed before. Because I don't think I sound any different than I did before, but it's <laughs> probably more noticeable. And yes, I'm not traveling as much, but and but there is it's those little subtle biases like that as well that we need to just really 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 watch so yeah just I thought you'd find that amusing
0: definitely and and it is you know it's it's those little things and you mentioned we sadly I don't think we have time to go into it but I think there's a whole element of this of actually what does the young workforce do you know you and I we're speaking here I can see you're in what looks like a spare bedroom or a study you know I'm I'm in our study we're very fortunate to have that and that's not just an age thing but a privilege you know you mentioned we're, we're very fortunate you know young people your graduates if they're in flats in London you mentioned around the sort of, they're on the ironing board and that sort of thing. And actually, that isn't necessarily sustainable for a long term. So we can save offices for our consultancy, you know, there's a good cost saving, but actually then what about your people and the environment for them? So there's there's a lot of these consequences that have to be dealt with, but have to be thought of sensitively to work for everyone. And very last questions then Tricia. so I'm conscious you know, we we're, we're almost coming up to the end of our time together and these are two questions I ask everyone so I'll let you answer them as you you know as you choose so the first one is around books so you mentioned a couple of books earlier on today you mentioned Eleanor Roosevelt you mentioned Shel Sandberg but this is very much just a i like to read my listeners like to read what is the book or books that you take this in whatever time frame you want you know you found yourself recommending or gifting to the most people to help them on their journeys
1: i think from a female perspective and women in business then beyond the boys club has been is is a lovely little book and says i cannot remember the author's name suzanne dr suzanne doyle and I found that little book in a, a in a page of one of the flight magazines when I was on a flight. And I saw a quote and I thought, I'm going to go and buy that. So I've, I've bought that for quite a few people now because it's very personal. I defy any woman to read it and not think, oh, there's a tip for me. There's something. It won't all apply, but at different stages of your career, there's something. I thought that was a great little book. Lena and I'm a big fan of. I read it before. It was really, really popular. And actually somebody in the firm, when I made director, bought me that. And uh, it was just out. And it was a great book. I'm a big fan of taking uh, snippets of lots of different books. And I think the, there are a few that I'm reading at the moment. In fact, one's on my bookshelf here if I can. Yeah. I'm just going to grab it sure. and give you the title. How Remarkable Women Lead, and that was another one from a, a DNI perspective, Joanna Barsh and Susie uh, Cranston, a great book for working on exercises in terms of yourself. So I like quite practical books. There's some amazing books on digital leadership and the way that technology is impacting women in the workplace, and some really great stories there.
0: To your point around practical books, so oh, I love practical books. And you mentioned you know, these would be recommendations you'd give to women in business. What would you point, I'll talk about myself for now, men like me who, as you said, we want to do something, we are in a privileged position. What is the book that you would recommend men read to help understand the female perspective on how they can do more to support women in their teams, women that they're sort of the role model for or leading
1: I think I'd recommend the same books, to be honest, because I think, you know, most women will read them and go, yep, that's fine. That's obvious. So I think although they are written around women's careers, I think I've recommended some reading to, in fact, I've bought one book for quite a few male colleagues, which I've got in front of me right now, which is one of my favourite ones, The Hundred Year Life, which you may have heard of, which is, you know, that aspect of, you know, it's a Business of Book of the Year 2016. I bought a copy for myself. I was talking to another colleague about it who was thinking about what he did for the next 10 years of of his career. And the fact that we're all living longer and we're working longer, you can have serial careers, you know, long gone are the days where you go into one profession and you stay. I think when a book's good, both men and women can, can glean from that. And other thing is where a lot of us are parents and brothers and sisters and, you know, wives and husbands and partners of many other people. And I oh got a really old book that a consultant recommended to me when I first started working with them. It was called What Color Is Your Parachute? And I don't know if you've heard of, have you heard of that book, Nick?
0: No, it's a, it's a brilliant It's a brilliant title, so tell me it's more, It's a Frish.
1: brilliant book. I don't have it on my bookcase beside me, so I cannot remember the life of me who wrote it. But I I got my niece to get that recently. So said, get this book, because it's got really practical exercises you can work through. So that is part of that self-discovery. Another thing I do is I read some of my daughter's books, so I steal some of them when she lets me. And it's a, a lovely little novel, which is, uh, you know, written for, I guess, teenagers, but it's a fantastic book called The Liar Without My Fat. I'm going to need to dig out the title for you if you do want to put it at the end. But there, you'll get things from lots of different books and, and just reading, getting the time to read anything is, is, is quite hard, but it's really important.
0: Yeah, no, some great recommendations. And yes, if you can send me after this, just at some point, send me an email with the title of the book uh, you're reading from your daughter. And I'll put I that will. in the show notes as well, because I love to get different yeah. books, Trish. And, and like you say, it doesn't all have to be business. Absolutely not. Of, you know, novels and and historical fiction, all of that sort of stuff's brilliant. So thank you for those. And then very last question. And this could be a recap. It could be a point you've not made, but it's. This is a question again. I ask all of my guests, and it's it's to give advice. So you can give one piece of advice, and the three people in front of you—they're all consultants. One of them is just starting their career. They're you know an analyst might be in sort of an EY. They might even be one of your um, apprentices. You know that first stage of their career. The second is someone who's around—I say manager level, but you know the the middle grades in consulting. So you know, let's say mid twenties, mid to late twenties. In that sort of, they've done enough to have choices, but they may not have made a big career decision yet. And then the third person is, I guess, someone almost where you were joining EY, if not a little later. They're approaching partner, so it's your directors who have that decision point. You know, do I commit to this for the long term? Do I make partner and and proceed with that as my career, or do I go somewhere else? And as I say, the the simple question to that very long build up is: What one piece of advice would you give to each?
1: To each? Well, that's a hard question. Um, The analyst and the junior person would be try anything. Don't be picky about what you do. And I see it a lot in the graduates who join. It's like, well, I don't want to do that because I want to do this. They all want to do strategy. So, you know, do anything that you're asked to do because then you will understand what you enjoy and what you don't It's back to the process of elimination rather than being too choosy. And it makes you very agile with organisations So take every opportunity. The manager level, I think have the courage to lead, have the courage to, you know, look at your senior managers and directors above you and think, you know, what could I be doing to get myself there, have a think about, that's a really great level to be in in a consulting firm where you're getting a lot of increased responsibility but you maybe don't own the engagement, you're not that involved in maybe some of the finances. but think about your client, building relationships with your clients, for all of them actually, it's just a given Um, you know, never think that you can't own a relationship because you're a junior consultant, you will be working with people who won't know what grade you are and it won't matter to them, they'll be looking at what you are about, so that's the one for the manager level, digging deep on relationships and looking above and around you. And then with the, the director level, and a lesson I very much applied myself was focus. Really thinking about at that stage in your career, you've got a really good sense of who you are and what you're about. Use the mentors and the sponsors around you to help you focus, because if you're talented, you will get offered too many hats for too many jobs and you will be stretched beyond belief. And I I am not a believer of jobs that can get done just to make a point on the side of the desk when you're already a very busy professional. So really big focus. And I guess to all of them in this day and age, uh, more than ever, is, is mental health. Look after you. Think about your own health and wellbeing and vitality and really identify what you enjoy doing.
0: Brilliant. Well, I think a really powerful point to finish on, Trish, and some some great advice in there. So thank you very much for this. I've really enjoyed it. I think we've covered a ton of areas that we don't normally go into, we don't spend enough time on, I think, you know, the diversity agenda and actually what people can be doing is a really important thing. And so thank you for for sharing your perspective on that. The last thing then to say is just for anyone who's listened to this, you know, they want to find out more about yourself, potentially want to get in touch. I mean, where would you point them to, you know, where can, where can they go to find out more about you?
1: LinkedIn is a great place or follow me on Twitter or, you know, the ey.com website has all our Discover profiles, but yep, LinkedIn, Twitter, get in touch as you'll see my profile. I love a natter.
0: Fantastic, Trish. Well, thank you very much for this and all that's left to say is all the best for the rest of your week.
1: Thank you very much, Nick.
0: I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Climbing Consulting. If you have any guest recommendations, comments, ideas, thoughts on how I can make this show better for you, just drop me an email. It's nick at createengage.co.uk and I really look forward to hearing from you.